We have always been captivated by stories of transmutation, our minds enchanted by the power of turning one thing into another in an instant. Anyone who gazed upon Medusa would be instantly turned to stone, and anything touched by King Midas was instantly turned to gold. Water was turned into wine, and clay was turned into living, breathing birds by Jesus himself. These powers are far out of reach for any mortal such as ourselves, but with a magical item called the Philosopher's Stone, one can turn anything into anything else, like lead, into gold. Alchemists have been searching for the Philosopher's Stone for thousands of years, but what they failed to notice is that we've had it all along. We now know it today as money. Money is the ultimate Philosopher's Stone, capable of turning anything into anything else. For example, let's say that you are an apple farmer, fields upon fields of bright red apples to your name. Apples aren't all you need, however. You can't wear them as clothes or use them to power your TV. But with the power of money, you can sell your apples for cash and then buy some clothes and pay your power bill. The Philosopher's Stone of money allows you to turn apples into clothes and electricity. And the best part is that it's all in our imagination, invented over thousands of years of cognitive evolution. Let's go back to the start together and discover humanity's philosopher's stone. Our hunter-gatherer ancestors lived together in bands of a few dozen people. Different members may have had specialties that other members would have come to them for, like cooking, medical care, or tailoring. Goods and services were shared amongst everyone through a system called gift economy. One band member would gift someone, say, some free food, which would then be expected to be paid back with something like free medical care. This system worked well because everyone knew everyone, meaning it was really easy to remember who you owed and who owed you back. Occasionally, bands would come across groups from other areas. This meant they had rare resources from far distant lands, like pretty seashells, hard obsidian, or crystals. The gift economy system wouldn't work very well in this situation, because these strangers would not be able to pay back any favours since you were unlikely to see them again. So, instead, bartering took place, where the groups would agree on a trade, swapping some pretty seashells for maybe some sparkly crystals, or high quality tools for some flint. The agricultural revolution planted the seed that would eventually grow to become cities and empires. People began to settle in one area and grow their food, rather than roaming the lands, foraging and hunting. This led to a severe increase in production, allowing for a huge increase in the number of people that could live together. 
the densely packed cities coupled with improved transportation allowed for the opportunity of specialization. Every member of a city needed food. They needed shoes and clothes and houses. So people dedicated themselves to farming, shoemaking, tailoring and building. Sometimes entire cities would even specialize in one main export that they would trade to other cities. For example, some places gained a reputation for really good wine as their climate and soil was perfect for grapevines. The same happened in other places but instead with olive oil, ceramics and seafood. Of course, all of this so far has been about physical goods, but just as people specialised in making pots, shoes and tools, others were honing their talents as doctors, priests and soldiers. Specialisation was better for everyone. Doctors would get better at treating patients and builders would construct nicer houses. But there was a problem. People were still using the gift economy or bartering system from thousands of years ago. And with so many new goods and services, it was difficult to keep track of how much of one thing equaled how much of another thing. How many apples should a house cost? How does a soldier pay for boots if the shoemaker doesn't need protection? What does a builder do when the doctor he needs doesn't need anything built? What was needed was a way to make transactions using something that everyone wanted all the time, no matter who you were. This was the discovery of the Philosopher's Stone, the invention of money. Money is purely imaginary. It requires zero technological development or scientific breakthrough, just pure cognitive revolution. Money is anything that people will use to represent value in an exchange, and most of the time this value only exists because of one key principle. People only want money because everyone else wants money. The first type of money was Sumerian barley money, which appeared about 5,000 years ago. Barley money was simply barley grains, but they were measured in little bowls called silas, which were equal to about a litre in volume. These silas were mass-produced so that when people needed to make a transaction, they could easily measure out the right amount of barley. Just like that, the specialization problem was solved. A doctor could pay 20,000 silas to a builder for a house, and then the builder could use a thousand of those for new boots and clothes at a shoemaker and tailor. Everyone was happy to receive silas for payment because they knew that it could be used in other transactions. But barley silas weren't perfect. It was very difficult to store and transport. Paying for a house with 20,000 silas meant 20,000 litres of barley, which is about the size of a fuel tanker truck. Barley could also be lost easily in a fire and could even be eaten by rats. The next form the Philosopher's Stone took was that of metal. To be specific, 
it was the silver shekel. The silver shekel was similar to barley in that it was about the material that it was, but based on the measurement. So, one silver shekel was 8.3 grams of silver. So, if you had a lump of metal that was 40 grams, that was roughly 5 shekels. Silver really has no use as a material. It can't be fashioned into clothes, and it was too soft to be used as tools. At least barley silas could be eaten, if nothing else. But once again, people didn't actually care about the physical characteristics of silver shekels. They only wanted them because everybody else wanted them, and that is what made them valuable. The shekel eventually gave birth to the first ever coins. Coins are very similar to shekels in that they are set weights of metal, like silver or gold. But rather than just being some random lump of silver, coins were forged and stamped by the king to show how much the coin was worth. This also guaranteed that the coin was real and not just lead with a silver coating. Because the coins were marked, it was far easier to make transactions because you no longer had to weigh everything to determine the worth. The coin was the key to the world. When lots of people believed in the value of the same coin, it allowed for trade between not only different cities, but completely different empires and countries. The Roman coin was trusted all over the world, so merchants from everywhere would use it for their endeavours. The Philosopher's Stone was becoming more widespread and insanely more powerful. Paper money was first introduced in China during the 11th century. The paper notes were not individually worth anything, they were simply representative of coins. So, depending on the markings, a paper note may be worth 5 coins, or 10 coins, or even 100 coins. This made trading far easier, especially for travelling merchants, because 100 paper notes were far easier to carry than 10,000 metal coins. If you wanted to have the real coins instead of just the notes that represented them, you could exchange them for equivalent amounts of coins with the government and vice versa. A similar thing happened in England a few hundred years later. Goldsmith banks were being built all over the country to store huge amounts of gold that merchants and traders were bringing in from around the world. When a customer deposited some gold, they were given a receipt stating the quantity and the quality of the deposit. Initially, only the person who made the original deposit was able to later withdraw it. So, if I deposited some gold and gave you the receipt, you still wouldn't be able to withdraw the gold because I was the one who deposited it. But later on, the goldsmiths let anyone with a receipt withdraw the amount of gold that it stated. So just like in China, these paper receipts could now be used as money because they were tied directly to something that people already wanted. Paper money, like in China and England, is called representative money. 
The idea being that paper notes can become valuable if they represent something else that people want. Eventually, though, people lose sight of the thing that the notes represent, and the paper itself is all that people care about. Nowadays, notes aren't even tied to anything at all. The government prints them just so we know they're real, and then we all use them because, like we've seen time and time again, we all want something when everybody else wants it too. The Philosopher's Stone takes many forms. Barley silas, lumps of metal, stamped coins, gold and marked paper have all been used for the exact same purpose throughout the course of human history. These are all physical things that you can hold and see in your hands. But at some point, someone figured out how to use time as money. It all starts with the bank. Whenever we deposit money in the bank, we agree that the bank can use that money for whatever they want while it's in their possession. The main thing they use it for is loaning it out to other customers. This essentially converts time into money using a little thing we call credit. Let's say you had a really good season on your apple farm this year and managed to grow and sell one million dollars worth of shiny, crunchy apples. You don't need a million dollars right now, so you go to the bank and deposit all of it. The next day, a girl named Michaela comes to the bank and tells them her grand plan to open a theatre. Michaela asks the bank for a million dollars so she can build the theatre, promising to pay all of the money back as soon as her shows start selling out. The bank just received your million dollars yesterday, so you won't be needing it anytime soon. And so they agree to Michaela's proposal, saying that she has one year to pay it all back. Michaela builds her theatre and starts selling out shows every single night, just as she said she would. She quickly pays the bank the full amount. You withdraw the money shortly after in order to double the size of your apple farm for the new season. It would normally be impossible to build an entire theatre and expand an apple farm with only a million dollars. But because we have these imaginary constructs called banks, we are able to convert time into money. You didn't need your money immediately, so the bank was able to use it to build an entire theatre in the meantime, and you didn't even notice. Loans and credit systems are no new invention. Gift economy from thousands of years ago was built entirely on the idea of receiving now and paying later. But in this case, there was very little risk. If you gave someone food one night and they never did anything in return, that's a very small loss. But you would never give anybody an entire season's worth of food because that would be far too big of a risk. So what changed? Only a few hundred years ago, humanity began to dream and imagine a future where the problems of today would be solved. We began to have faith that tomorrow would be better than today, and with that came trust in each other's endeavours and dreams. 
you only give the bank your money because you trust that in the future they will pay it back. The bank only gave Michaela money because they trusted that her theatre would be a great success and that she would pay it back. The government only gives students loans because they trust that the students will one day be successful and be able to pay it back. The list goes on and on. This system of trust is the thread that weaves together society as we know it today. One of growth, of expanse, and of dreams. The Philosopher's Stone has taken the form of bowls of barley, of metal in the shape of coins and bars, and of pieces of marked paper. The Philosopher's Stone is all of those things at once, but at the same time, it's nothing at all. It does and it does not exist, because it is all in our collective imagination. This imaginary philosopher's stone in our minds allows us to turn anything into anything else together. It is simultaneously incredibly selfish and unfathomably cooperative, because it rests all on one simple fact. Money is only valuable because everybody else wants it. <laughs>